Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 17. As we continue to look at the spider that just fell from somewhere onto the pulpit. Okay. <laughs> so we continue to look at uh, evangelism, both from um, in, within the context of our uh, world and who we are, the context today of our culture. We're looking at the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church history, all those things to help us understand what it is the Lord calls us to do today with this precious gift that he has placed within us, that is the knowledge of Christ from the gospel that we see before us. So if you're able, I would encourage you to stand with me as we turn to Acts chapter 17. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word today. Give us eyes to see. Not just the words on the page, but really what they are saying and how our lives should conform to that. How we should have uh, tender hearts and, and willing spirits to reach those who do not know you as Lord and Savior. To reach them with this wonderful gospel you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Acts 17, beginning in verse 16 and going all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, This is Paul's time at Athens. So now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So obviously this was very exciting to them, hearing something new. 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship... I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, well, some mocked him, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. We see that from our text and from common knowledge, evangelism can occurs in the context of diverse cultures. Now, what was effective in 1990 may not be effective in 2022. Now, our church planters um, go about things in a particular way relative to their culture. Now, it's not like it was 40 years ago when uh, if you were going to plant a church, you would uh, send out 10,000 flyers to the community or you would... um, get a bunch of phone banks, uh, phones at a, a phone bank, and call 10,000 people expecting 100 to come to your first service. That's one of the ways it used to work. It doesn't work like that anymore. They start with small groups, usually in their house, and invite friends and friends of friends and begin to build relationships, and that circle widens and widens and widens until they reach what they feel is a critical mass in which they then begin to work in corporate worship. What's effective in Huntsville may not be effective in New York City. What works in France may not work in Japan. Now, when I was in in Russia in 1994, and we went there to hand out the Gospel of John and to work as much as we could with the the local people, we were in uh, Saratov, and we wheeled this cart down into the main street. It was an old European-style city, so there was a street there where no cars went, but everybody walked, and... We had a a cart that was probably eight feet long, and it was just piled up with boxes, and they they were the Gospel of John. So uh, we opened a box, and we yelled out, Evangelon. Well, that got everybody's attention. Remember, this is 1994 in Russia. They came out in droves. There were ten deep surrounding us. Couldn't open the boxes and give the, the, the Gospel of John away fast enough. I mean, you wouldn't see a crowd like that in Huntsville unless you were giving away $100 bills. I mean, it just was that, it's hard to imagine, but for people who were starved of the gospel for generations to finally be able to hold a portion of the New Testament in their hands, they, they just loved it. And there were no copies laying on the street when we were done. They all went with people. They all went home. In Acts 17, Paul is in a particular cultural context. And to challenge his hearers with the gospel, he quoted to the Athenians their own cultural texts and their own poets. So this is not an, an anomaly in scripture. We see this in several places and probably the most prominent place is in the four gospels. Each gospel shows certain aspects of the ministry of Jesus relative to the particular audience that they want to hit. Matthew's gospel is directed at the Jews. That's why you see the um, uh, 
Genealogy. Uh, who said that? Genealogy. Thank you. Uh, and, and because they were tying it back in time. It was a Jewish audience that was very important. Matthew um, shows how he fulfills the messianic prophecy, uh, his kingship, the titles of Jesus. He uses Jewish cultural idioms in what he does. His gospel defends the idea that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. A Jewish audience, they would appreciate that. The Gospel of Mark is written to a non-Jewish audience, and in particular to a Roman or Latin audience. Because Mark has to describe certain Hebrew uh, terms and Hebrew places, geography, and Mark is the only one to include the statement by the Roman centurion at the cross. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The Jews wouldn't particularly care about a Roman centurion, but the Romans would be very impressed that the centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion made that statement. Luke, who was Greek, reflects Hellenistic view. They were inquisitive, so he gives them a lot of insights and songs and details for the inquisitive mind. And then, of course, John's gospel is designed to offer evidence that proves Jesus is the Christ. John 20, verses 30 and 31. I've written this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John also writes to contradict the Gnostics, a growing movement. So each one has a particular audience that he is addressing. Now in Athens, Paul has entered what would at that time be the academic center of the world. Athens is known for having laid the basis of Western democratic society. It was the city of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those other philosophers that that you learned in in college that you can't remember. Um, The Athenians thought very highly of themselves because of this. They were very, very proud of their intellectual ability, their their time spent in philosophical debate. They just loved to sit around and and go back and forth with these ideas. As Paul said, they were always ready to hear something new, something new. So in the second century BC, the Romans conquered Athens. And Romans weren't too big on philosophy. They liked their own thought, their own gods. Um, So they naturally liked only Roman culture and had some real suspicion about the Athenians. So Paul is at Athens and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up and while he's waiting he kind of walks around town just like you and I would do if we were waiting for people and he's shocked by the number of idols that he sees in this intellectual city. Uh, From the history the best we can come up with is the population was about 10,000 at Athens at that time but there were 30,000 idols just hanging out in the city, hanging out, you know, on, on display throughout the city. So what Paul saw was, despite all their learning, all their culture, they were just idolaters. That's just what they were. They worshipped any idol that you could bring into town. John Calvin summed this up in his institutes, and he said, man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols, a perpetual factory of idols. If we don't, didn't have a God, we'd make one. In fact, we'd make a dozen, just to be sure. So when Paul arrives in Athens, there are two opposing schools of philosophy that are mentioned here, Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans taught that pleasure was the chief goal of man. Okay? Pleasure was the chief goal of man. 
especially, and I'm quoting, the intellectual serenity that is achieved by overcoming disturbing passions and superstitious fears, especially the fear of death. Epicurus was a materialist, and at death he felt the person just ceased to exist. Thus, there was no afterlife. Thus, this was everything. So you better get the most out of this world that you, could, you can. We would call the Epicureans hedonists today. They searched after pleasure. They certainly did not believe in the bodily resurrection. The Stoics were followers of Zeno. And they thought that the good was located in the soul. Okay? And through wisdom and restraint, this delivers a person from the passions that disturb our daily lives. So the Stoics put a great emphasis on the rational. They felt that if you focused on the rational, then the body was less important and you could find a real peace and a real joy and a real self-sufficiency. The idea of personal achievement brought them great pride. You can imagine that. I do it all myself. It's, I'm the man. So because of their belief and, and, and what they had a cyclical view of nature, everything goes down and then comes back up, they too did not believe in the resurrection. So when Paul brings a message of the resurrected Christ, you can imagine, <laughs> they throw up their head and laugh at this guy. There's no bodily resurrection. Of course not. But this is the culture that Paul brings the gospel into. So Paul has quite a task. How do you present the gospel to people who don't believe in the resurrection, who believe either in the pursuit of pleasure or the denial of themselves? Both groups are so prideful, they look down on the rest of the world. Now, Paul is, it's a tough crowd that Paul is going to deliver the gospel to. But Paul, Paul is a pretty bright guy. He walks into this culture filled with all the false gods, filled with the pride of human philosophies, and in a fashion that he has not done previously, he presents the gospel. Paul knows his audience. He knows their culture. And without compromising the gospel, he presents Jesus Christ to these intellectual idolaters. So Paul starts and they go, oh, we've got to get you down to the, the main place. So they bring Paul to the Areopagus, which is a body of uh, administrators. It was their job to figure out what was worth hearing and what was not worth hearing, especially when it came to religious matters. So here it is in front of these experts that Paul says, verse 22, Paul, Paul sees, he perceives that they're very religious. Now, religious... We're sitting in church. We have a good concept of what religion is and what that means. But I religiously walk my dog. But that does not get me to heaven. Okay? So they are religious about their idol worship. That's what they're religious about. So Paul does not attack their false gods. He doesn't belittle their ignorance concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. He does not attack their smugness and their self-confidence and feeling of self-sufficiency. Since none of those who held the philosophic view had any knowledge of, of the Bible, the Epicureans or the Stoics, they didn't have any knowledge of the Bible, Paul begins with God's self-revelation. Where does God reveal himself to every person in existence? 
in the created order. That's where he reveals himself. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 in particular. We are without excuse. We see around us all the evidence we need to come to the conclusion that God exists. Not that Jesus Christ has given his life to atone for our sin, but that God exists. To understand Jesus Christ, we have to come here to the word. So Paul begins there. In verse 23, he says... For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he is using what is familiar to the idol worshipers, something they erected out of their own false belief that can actually point them to the living God. Now we can't be certain how this altar came to be, but we can surmise that Because they worshiped so many idols, they thought, well, just in case we missed one, we'll erect this one to the unknown God. And Paul says, that's the God I know. Let me tell you about him. So he's already got them hooked. He's used their culture. He's used their construction of of a plaque to an unknown God. And he's got them hooked. And he says, I know this God. This is Paul's point of contact in this culture. So he establishes this common ground with them. And he moves right into the existence of God. Paul says, him who you ignorantly worship, I declare to you. So from the moment he begins to speak, you understand Paul's on a collision course with all these pagan philosophies. But it doesn't stop him from using those pagan philosophies as a jumping off point to present the gospel of Christ. So ask yourself this. If you're in the middle of a crowd and and you have a chance to present Jesus Christ to people who don't believe in the resurrection, people who have never read the gospel, what do you do? Paul doesn't give them four spiritual laws. He doesn't say to them, But he does say to them, you are surrounded by the revelation of God. You are surrounded by evidence that he exists. And he speaks of the creator and the fact that he has made his creation. And every atom within the universe bears the stamp of our Lord. And let's face it, there's nothing in this world that speaks to atheism. There's nothing in the created order that speaks to atheism. It all speaks to the existence of God. Paul points to creation. He says to the Athenians, look around you. What you see are the things that prove God exists. So he continues to use the the Athenian culture. He quotes a couple of their poets. Now, their poets have nothing to do with the gospel. The things that he quotes are, 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 are not pointing to God in any sense, but he uses their own poetry to illustrate what he is talking about. Verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being, even as your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul may be taking stuff out of context, but he's using their stuff to point to God. And they're kind of in a quandary. Gee, what do I do now? He says our own poets are pointing to this God that we don't know, that he says he knows and is showing to us. It would be like, and I just am quoting this because I don't understand any of it. It would be like walking into a genetics seminar to present the gospel. 
and you begin your gospel presentation with a discussion of the complexity of DNA and how, in a double-stranded form, the nucleotides on each strand being complementarian, thus each strand can act as a template for creating a new partner strand, thereby the sequence of nucleotides in a gene is translated by cells to produce a chain of amino acids creating proteins, the order of amino acids in a protein corresponding to the order of the nucleotides in the gene. This relationship between nucleotide sequence and amino acid sequence is known as the genetic code. Now, you got the geneticists hooked, okay? What do you do to present the gospel now? Now you make the turn to the inherent orderliness of the created world. And how all these things, you're going to tell me these things came together by chance? This is the hand of the designer in all of this, in all of our DNA, and how this orderliness speaks of a specific plan that must point to the creator. You're using their own world and their own context to point to our Heavenly Father. This is what Paul is doing right here in Athens. You believe such and such. Well, now let me show you the fulfillment of what it is that you believe. So he points the Athenians to the supremacy of God the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. And Paul begins, the God who made the world and all things in it does not dwell in temples made by hand. It's not as if he needs you to build a temple for him. He exists everywhere. He gives himself to all people. He gives all people life and breath. He shows how intellectually foolish their idolatry is. And, you know, intellectuals, they're going to create God in their own image sooner or later. Okay. And that is not the way that it happens. God has created us in his image. He alone is the single inescapable fact of all existence. To think that you could make a temple that would contain God. So often we like to put, we say, we put God in a box. Yeah, that's a figure of speech. But you understand, God is beyond us. He is beyond the Athenians. That's the God they've been concerned that they have missed. And Paul says, this is the one. He created you. And when he gets to the resurrection, some people in the audience begin to sneer. Some people say, I'll hear more about you. And then some follow at that moment. Paul is showing that even though men are in fact dependent upon God for everything, and God has graciously given us life and breath, we've ignored them. We've ignored the Lord and we've gone our own way. The path of the true intellectual, this is what Paul's after, the path of the true intellectual leads to the creator of all the universe. Ed Stetzer, who's up at Wheaton and head of church planting, wrote, The biblical mission of the church needs to exist in the orbit of go and tell and less in come and see. Go and tell less in come and see. So the missional thrust of Jesus, I'm still quoting, the missional thrust of Jesus and his followers was not let's set up a shop and they'll come to us. No, let's go and get them. Let's take the gospel into the world and make disciples as we're going. Let's just not stay here in Jerusalem. Let's go get the sheep that are outside this pen. Let's go and get them. 
So what does this mean in our culture today concerning how we present the gospel? Well, the first thing is you've got to be yourself. You don't think you have to be somebody else. You don't have to be an intellectual giant. You don't have to be a theological expert in any fashion. What has Christ done in your life? What is the love that he has given to you? Demonstrate that to the people around you. Let God be manifest in your life, where you live, where you work, where you play. Look for the God-given opportunities that he lays before us. This is like we talked about last week, a lifestyle of evangelism. A lifestyle of evangelism. That may mean putting your preferences aside. If it's going to promote the gospel, you may have, like Paul did, if, if my eating this meat is going to be a problem to you, I won't eat it for your benefit. Remember, presenting the gospel is our goal. Fitting into culture and being relevant is not our goal. I know that puts us outside of a lot of things. The gospel presentation is our goal. We can use the culture to do so. We don't have to love the culture. We don't have to embrace the culture. But we can use the culture to present the gospel. Now, you know, I often do what I call theology by cinema. You know, I'll quote Cecil B. DeMille movies, Ten Commandments, uh, the... Samson and Delilah. Who was I quoting in Sunday school? Anybody remember? Some movie that was old. Okay, but if you've never seen those movies, it means nothing to you. Okay, if you don't even know, if you say he mentioned Cecil B. DeMille, who is this? Okay, it means nothing to you. That's not a good cultural illustration. A lot of my pastor friends use movies such as Star Wars, Harry Potter, The Martian, Gravity. The Gladiator, E.T., The Matrix, as jumping off points of cultural relevance to move to the gospel. I don't usually do that. I might use something for an illustration. But they're taking items from culture, which their non-believing friends are familiar with, creating common ground and moving to the gospel that way. This is a modern application of what Paul is doing here in Athens. Now, unfortunately... The Athenians loved to debate. They loved to hear new stuff. They loved to sit around and get that new information and chew on it. Many people in our culture do not like that. They hear something new, something that's outside of their comfort zone, and they put up the defenses. As believers, we have to be ready for that. As believers, we have to be ready to, to approach them with questions that, that call their pre conceived ideas into question why do you believe those things about this and and to move and to demonstrate not that we can smush them with our argument but that we can love them even though we're different but this is the truth the gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth so the actions of Jesus of Paul other New Testament writers suggest that evangelism that changes and transforms lives requires a clear message communicated in word and in deed in ways that are relevant and meaningful to hook in the culture so that we can take them to Christ. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you today and we see what Paul did here, and it it might not be something that everybody is really equipped to do, but we see he used something that, that was unexpected. Yes, he presented the truth of the gospel. 
he got there using things that tied into their culture that they understood, and he led them step by step right to your existence, right to your lordship over all of them. Some rejected it, and we have to be ready for that. They're not rejecting us. They're rejecting you. Some said, we're going to talk some more. And we have to be ready for those who need to hear more, that, that you're working in their lives and your timing is perfect, and we need to be faithful to follow up, to continue to love them, continue to share the truth with them. But it also says some followed Paul right there. And they weren't following Paul. They were following Christ. They were following the God that Paul presented, the resurrected Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to see in our own worlds, in our own neighborhoods, perhaps in our own families, what are the points that we can use to help lead them to Christ? Or at the very least, bring that up in the conversation knowing that it might take 10 or 15 or 20 of those for you to, before you decide that that is the moment that you will open their eyes and change their hearts. Help us to be faithful in this, knowing it's our job to present. It is your work to save. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.